Okay, Palm Sunday. Let's just get right into the scriptures where this happened. If you got your Bible there, turn to Matthew, the 21st chapter, and verse 1. Father, I just thank you that you're with us. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that it's no coincidence that anybody listening to this message, you knew it in advance. You brought forth just what their heart needed to hear because you're a good father and you care for our lives. And we, we know that we will go forth in the power of the spirit of wisdom and revelation with our hearts protected. Amen. Verse 1, And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if any man say anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straightway he will send them. <laughs> Can't you imagine Greg standing up here? He's the man of God, right? And he says, Hey, Maurice, I want you to go down to the street here, and I want you to get that red car, and I want you to bring it up here. And if anybody says something to you, you just say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> okay. You have to forgive me. I, 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 my mind just goes to some of these places. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes to you, meek and sitting on an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and, he set, and set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed crying, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? 
Okay, today is the anniversary of Jesus riding into the temple on an ass. It's the Sunday before Good Friday when Jesus offered himself for the sins of the world on the cross. It wasn't called Palm Sunday back when Jesus rode in Jerusalem. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem was known as the Day of the Lambs. It wasn't happenstance that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the Day of the Lambs. The Day of the Lambs is the day where they would bring all the spotless male lambs to Jerusalem. The lambs that were raised without spot and blemish would be brought into Jerusalem where they would be examined to be sure that they were perfect and that they would pick the perfect lamb for the Passover. No coincidences. If you were in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about how certain things happen in the fullness of time. There is a direct correlation. There, is, there, are, there are times and seasons when things are supposed to happen and that's just, it's gonna happen that way. And that's what happened here. It was prophesied, it's time for the fulfillment of the prophecy, and boom. And I don't think they were sitting back reading the Bible and going, okay, well, it says this, 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 and this, so let's go do this, 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 and this. You know, they weren't trying to manipulate something. You know, you, well, no, I won't go there. Something that I found interesting about this years ago, it was brought to my attention did you ever notice that it wasn't the people bringing the lamb that got examined and inspected? It was the lamb itself that got inspected. People have the idea, well, I can't go to God because I've done this and I've done that and blah, 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 blah. He's not even looking at that. What's he looking at? He's looking at the lamb. That's what gets examined. He's the perfect lamb. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, offered himself as the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He presented himself as the Passover lamb, as the lamb God provided to cause the death in the world to pass over us. He presented himself to be examined. Isaiah 53 says Jesus opened not his mouth. Isaiah said Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he didn't open his mouth. Jesus presented himself to be examined as the Lamb of God. He stood before Pilate. He didn't open his mouth to justify himself. Pilate examined Jesus, and there was no fault found in him. There's no blemishes, and the Pharisees picked him to be crucified. They actually offered two people. Remember Barabbas? Pilate actually tried to encourage them. We got to set somebody free. Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be Barabbas? Well, they let Barabbas go. They picked Jesus just as you would pick the spotless lamb. You know... <laughs> And, and this prophecy, it comes out of Isaiah. It was written over 700 years before this event. All of the law and the prophets, now I'm off of Greg's notes, now I'm, now I'm over to me, okay? All of the law and the prophets are about Jesus. This is why John would write, In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What Word, John? What Word? The Law, the Torah, and the Prophets. God incarnate is the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. He is the Olive Tav, or as you would say in the New Testament, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment or the correct interpretation of the law and the prophets. I bring this up here because there's many things in Isaiah 53 that, that people get wrong. Um, I'm thinking of the verse where it said, We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And if you listen to churches who subscribe to the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement, they're still operating off of that estimation. They're still operating off of the estimation that God punished Jesus. That the, that the strickenness and the smittenness that he endured during this time was coming from God itself. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. The next word in that passage is but. But is a contradictory word. You, you ever tried to say something to somebody and they go, yeah, but. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but. There's a contradictory word, and you can study that out. Let's see. In the, in the midst of, like I say, the entirety of the law and the prophets is talking about Jesus. When you try to make it about something else, that's where confusion enters in. That's where darkness enters in. That's where blindness enters in. And that, that darkness had been in the earth ever since death entered through Adam. We talked about this this morning too, how the, the foundations of the world, when I say world, I'm referring to this world system that we're in. The foundations of that world are built on pillars of darkness. Everything, it, it, it has a corrupt foundation. And it, the corruptness of that foundation will ultimately end up in the entire house falling. And, and, and that's ultimately what will happen. Okay, so Jesus comes in. He goes into the temple and he starts flipping the tables over. Well, I used to read that and it just struck me as odd. I'm like, aren't these guys just doing what they're supposed to be doing? I mean, if, if, if a man establishes a career out of, out of providing a service, a service that the people need or that they perceive that they need, and he makes a living off of doing that, it, it, 
What's wrong with that? What's up with Jesus? Why did he go in there and start flipping the tables over? It just seems kind of weird, doesn't it? It's like, what in the world's going on here? Jesus didn't go in there with darkness. He saw that that entire thing was built on fallacy. And that's why he went in there and flipped the tables over. Jesus flipped the tables over because he saw the whole system was built on the fallacy of the carnal mind. Jesus had eyes to see what the scriptures were really saying. And he knew these scriptures. Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings thou hast not required. We've got a contradiction here. Because that's Psalms. That's part of the prophets. You get the law and the prophets. So one seems to be saying you need these animal sacrifices and then, then come along and say God don't even desire that stuff. Always <laughs> Contradiction's a good thing. Because in the midst of contradiction, that's where revelation comes from. And when you see the contradiction, don't ignore it. Bring all the verses and bring them together. And then you go to God with it and let Him explain it to you. Rather than following the narrative of some doctrine that you've bought into, so when something presents itself, and it seems to be contrary to what you've established that you're basing your life on, it's probably not a wise thing to ignore that. People say, well, the scriptures are constantly contradicting. They say, your carnal mind contradicts itself. The scriptures are not contradictory. Just because you haven't seen what's there to be seen and, 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 and we're all coming into more and more understanding. And all of your getting, get understanding, which means that there's understanding to be gotten. But he wouldn't tell you to get it if it wasn't available to be gotten. You can have it. He wants you to have it. I, I'm thinking about Jesus laid his hands on a blind man one time. And he came away and he said, I see men as trees. So Jesus prayed for him again, and then he could see clearly. Well, that's kind of, that kind of describes me. There, there's some things that I, 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 I might not see them clearly, but the answer is go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus. Keep going back to Jesus. And it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Another verse, uh, Psalms 51, 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. Hosea 6, 6. For I desired mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. 
The religious leaders of that day had this thing all messed up. They were abiding in death, which produced the carnal mind, which is not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can it be, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. You can find that in Romans 8. This is why Jesus would refer to the Pharisees as blind guides. Their blindness caused them to make all kinds of unrighteous judgments. John would say they love darkness. Let's take a look at that. This scripture we're all familiar with. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, and he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, and neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness because their deeds were evil. Well, the carnal mind would read that where the evil deeds are concerned and it's thinking, oh, well, he's talking about the, the temptation to drink and smoke and chew and go with girls who do drink and smoke and chew. But that's not what he's talking about. Their evil deeds were, was that they were looking to the strength of their flesh to produce a righteousness inside of them and so that their life could be justified and they were doing it through certain deeds and they had based their life on this. I mean, these guys are totally bought in. They see their eternity based on that. The light shows up and it contradicts the entire foundation that they've stood on. It exposed to them that they had been building their house on sand instead of building their house on the rock. And when you're faced with that, it's like, you talk about cognitive dissonance. You talk about something coming and challenging strongholds that have been lifted up into the high places of your heart. It's going to produce one of two things. It's going to either produce repentance, which repentance means a change of mind. I'm not going to think that way no more. I'm going to think this way. That's what repentance means. Or you're going to harden your heart. You're going to love your darkness. And you're going to keep going forward with your evil deeds. The evil deeds of looking to the strength of your flesh. 
to operate in formulas and principles to try and gather life to yourself and then you can stand up in a life that's justified. Jesus comes as the light. The light entered into the world and it exposed that thing as being totally farce. That's what truth does. <laughs> the Word of God is truth and it's the sword of the Spirit and it comes in and it does things. And when truth shows up, the lie has nowhere to go. You know, I'm thinking in Colossians where it said, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers, putting them to an open shame. Okay? <laughs> I remember back years ago, there was this uh, Carmen song, The Champion. And it created this picture of Jesus, after his death, he goes to hell and he gets in a boxing match with the devil. And he's going to fight him and he's going to wrestle him. And he's finally going to pin him down and he's going to take the keys of hell and death and he's going to walk out the victor, the champion. The way that the principalities and powers got spoiled was because they were built on a system, a system built on sand, which said you can have righteousness and you can have justification by the strength of your own hand, by abiding by these carnal principles. And, and that's, that's the way you can have life. And if you don't adhere to those things, the ultimate, the ultimate end of that is going to result in death and it's going to result in you being rejected by God. That was their thinking. That's what was put out by the principalities and the powers of the air. So Jesus comes on the scene as the lamb, takes on the sin of the whole world. They esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That was their estimation because that was what they believed. That's the estimation that they would have to come to. This guy is a sinner. Therefore, he has to die and he's going to be rejected of God. But in the resurrection, what does that do to your theology? It, 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 it totally wipes the thing out. And there's nothing left for you to do except repent or harden your heart. One of those two things is going to happen. They love these deeds because those are the things they were looking to for life. And now we can understand something else in Isaiah 53. It says, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Because he's a shining light. He's exposing their system. And they hid their face from him. Well, we don't hide our face from him. We look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And as we look into his face and we see ourselves in his face, we're transformed into that image. Amen? Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He could have just as easily said there is no more blindness for those who are in Christ. Go listen to Greg's message on I can see clearly now that death is gone. <laughs> 
There is therefore now no blindness to those who are in Christ Jesus. We can see and we can see clearly. Jesus saw no need to justify himself because he wasn't blind to the truth that his father would justify him. He had no love for the darkness and he showed total disrespect to its voice which says you have to justify yourself. He was showing absolute disrespect to that system when he just stood there and didn't even answer it. This world system is designed because of the pillars that it's built on. It's constantly trying to get you to justify yourself. It's built into the system. And, and, and it comes across in, in the simplest forms. Here's an example. Let's say Brother Mike says, Hey, me and Denise are going to the movies. Would you and Annette like to join us today? And I say, no. And there's a long pause. Why the long pause? Because we're waiting on the excuse. We're waiting to say, no, because I got to go do whatever. But you see how that justification thing is just built into everything in this world system? Why can't you just say no? Why is that good enough? <laughs> Jesus saw no need to justify himself because he wasn't blind to the truth that the Father would justify him. He had no love for the darkness, showed total disrespect. Let's see. All right, back to Palm Sunday. We're going back to Greg's notes now. Y'all are like, thank God. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on an ass to fulfill the scripture from Zechariah 9 that says, Tell the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king comes to you meek and sitting on an ass, the colt and a colt, the foal of an ass. You see, the scripture was written to prophesy of the coming Lord and Savior as a sign for the people to be able to discern the times. Jesus could have ridden in on a chariot or on a Clydesdale, but he was meek. He didn't ride into Jerusalem by the strength of man or the strength of the world. He rode into Jerusalem by the power of the Father's love for him. And the Father's promise that he would not let him see corruption and neither would he leave Jesus' life in the grave. His heart wasn't filled with the strength of man or the strength of the world. It was filled with the Father's love for him. He could walk in there without fear because he saw things clearly. Jesus wasn't filled with the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. All right, here goes Matt again. The carnal mind produces a warped image of what it is to be meek. The world thinks of meekness as being timid or fearful. I can remember years ago reading in Numbers where it says, Now Moses was very meek above all the men which are upon the face of the earth. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute. Moses is the one who wrote that. Well, that, that kinda, that's kind of contrary to the way we normally think of meekness or humility, right? Moses wrote that about himself. <laughs> Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. That's, that's what he wrote. So maybe meekness is speaking of something different than the way we've 
looked at it, okay? Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your soul. To be meek is simply to think little of your own strength, and Jesus wasn't confused in this area. Jesus himself said, I can of myself do nothing. I like what a preacher I used to listen to years ago. He would say, without Jesus, I'm just a zero with the rim knocked off. Without him, we can do nothing. Seeing that the Father was in him produced the boldness to say, I am meek. I am the meek. I am the humble. That, that's a bold statement. So with that, go back and listen to Greg's message from the beginning of this year. It was called Bold as a Lion. And then there he talks about how meekness produces boldness. Jesus got all this right because he was operating not from the darkness, but from the light. He was walking in the power of a sound mind. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. He wasn't timid. Some, some, some Bibles even say God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity. Jesus rode into town with no fear of the death which he knew awaited him there. His fear was before the one who he knew was able to save him. What do you mean? Jesus needed to be saved? Hebrews 5, 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Jesus needed to be saved. That, that, that'll tilt your will. And, and, and we've discussed these things in some messages recently, so I'm not going to go into all that. But when you see these things, you have a, and, and it, it goes contrary to something that's in your heart, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. There's something there to be seen. There, there, there's a revelation ready to come forth. Revelation, apocalypto. Something's going to boom and you're going to see it. It's a revelation. You know, the thing about a revelation, a revelation is not a revelation of something that's not there. How do you reveal something that's not there? A revelation is a revelation of what is there. Well, what is there? Truth. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on an ass, fulfilling the prophecy, declaring himself to be the Messiah. If John the Baptist would have been alive, he would have said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the death that's reigning over the world because of sin. 
As Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, a great multitude spread garments on the path. Others cut down palm branches from the trees and spread them in the way, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you call someone the Son of David and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you're declaring they are Messiah. And what you're saying is, the one anointed by God to save and redeem and deliver is here. To come in the name of the Lord is to come as the representation of the Lord Himself, just as Hebrews says Jesus is the express image of God. Why did they lay palm branches on Jesus' path? Palm trees were a sign of victory and joy. Palm branches were used during the Feast of Tabernacles to make their booths and tents as a reminder that God Himself was tabernacled amongst them. The people laid palm branches on the path Jesus rode in on because they saw the presence of Jesus as a sign that God was with them, tabernacling among them to be their God and to save them. They laid the palm branches to declare God is with them to be their God and they will be His people. They laid down the palm branches because they were full of joy. They saw Jesus as a sign God was with them to save them from their sufferings and to wipe away tears. Jesus was a manifestation of the law and the prophets, right? So there should be something in the law and the prophets that even talked about this, right? Psalms 118:24. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with the cords even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. There's that joy coming forth. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what was going on on Palm Sunday. After Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple from the money changers, extorting money from the people for sacrifices. He heals the lame and the sick. The Pharisees see Jesus healing, in the, healing the lame and the sick, and they hear the children saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and they're very upset. And they try to shame Jesus. Do you hear what these children are saying unto you? The word Hosanna means save now or save, I beseech thee. When the children said to Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were calling on the name of the Lord. They were calling upon Jesus to save them now. They were crying out to the one who could save them from their suffering. That was a big problem for the Pharisees, not just because they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but the Jewish people have a tradition that only God can save. So they saw what the children were saying as total blasphemy. Interestingly enough, in their own traditions in the Talmud regarding the Messiah, there are Jewish rabbis who believe the Messiah would be of a divine origin. And one of the verses they quote that describes the Messiah is Micah 5, 2, as being from old, from everlasting. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, 
Though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That brings to mind another verse. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Prophesying about Jesus, right? He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That, that messes some folks thinking up real big. And, and if you're still wrestling with this idea of a trinity, I highly recommend that you go listen to a message that Maurice Cabarrack brought called Who is God? Isn't that what it was titled? Sure, and he, he, he gives you a really good look into that. Um, man, this is going a lot faster than I thought it would. Hallelujah. So uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to go into the part about the children. And before I do that, I want to ask uh, Maurice to come up and tell us a, and tell a story that he told in Sunday school a couple of mornings ago. So some people call him the space cowboy. Others call him the gangster of love. I call him Maurice, and he's going to speak to us of the pompous of love. <laughs> I prefer the gangster of love. Uh, anyway, so uh, like Matt was saying a, a couple of weeks ago, a week or so ago, I told this story about me and my daddy when, when I was like seven or eight years old. And uh, basically, it kind of goes like this. I was, uh, oh, by the way, let me just give you a little bit of background about my, my daddy. My daddy was somebody that I thought very highly of. He was a guy who just, when you m met him, you liked him. You, it, a lot of guys knew him, respected him. I know two or three people who said, you know, Maurice, I see your daddy as my daddy. And he was just this unbelievable human being. And uh, that's how I felt about him and a lot of other people. But I was like seven or eight years old. And one morning I got up and I was laying in bed. And I was feeling this very deep emptiness inside of me as a little bitty boy like that. And like I, I was like lonely, even though I had my family and it was a good family. Uh, uh, my environment said nothing to me about, Maurice, things are bad and you need to feel lonely. No, I just felt lonely. I, don't, I had no idea where that came from. But I remember getting up on a Saturday morning and going in the kitchen, and my mom and dad are in the kitchen. And I looked at my daddy, and I said, now just think about the, your, your child coming to you and saying this. I said, Daddy, 
I have this deep emptiness inside of me. And I feel lonely, though I know you guys are with me. I feel lonely inside. And my daddy, who must have been shocked to hear this coming out of his son, okay, looked at me. <laughs> and he said the only thing he could possibly say, because that's all he knew what to say. He said, Maurice, it'll go away. And lo and behold, about 23 years later, it did go away. In God's timing, it went away. And it came, it went away for a reason. Because I had come to know the one who fills the human heart. And, uh, but anyway, that's kind of the story that Matt wanted me to share with you. But, man, that was quite, a, quite an incident to be standing in the kitchen in Chalmette, Louisiana, and by your mom and dad and telling them, I feel empty inside. Crazy. The reason I had him tell that story because in Greg's notes, he's about to address where they tried to shame Jesus. They, 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 you know, listen to what they're saying about you. you. You're okay with this? They're trying to shame him. Shame can be a powerful force that, that comes in and tries to manipulate your thinking. But Romans 1, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein, therein, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ, because therein, therein where? There in the news is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God into salvation, that which can, call, that can rise up in you and guard your heart, is contained in a word. Now think about this. Maurice, he's looking unto his dad as being the caretaker of his life. And rightly so. Okay? All of a sudden he feels something that's contrary to life so what does he do? He goes to the one who is the caretaker of his life. And his dad presented an answer. And whether the answer was right or wrong has nothing to do with what I'm about to say. He gave an answer, and because of who he was in Maurice's life, that answer put his heart to rest. You can be affected by news, and it can, it can cause your thinking to be unclear. And usually that's the place where fear enters in. That's what was going on with you. You had, this, you had this feeling. You didn't know what this feeling was or what was causing it, and it was producing fear. You needed something to cause that to go to rest. Well, that's what the gospel does. It's a word from the caretaker of our life that puts our heart to rest. And in the midst of that rest, there's no reason to be ashamed. Because why are you ashamed? You're, you're ashamed because your nakedness has been uncovered. 
when, when circumstances of this world come and they uncover that you're not able to save yourself, shame sets in. Paul goes on in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 10, it says, For he that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Well, he's actually quoting from an Old Testament verse and when you read it in the Old Testament, it says, He that believeth shall not make haste. And I'm like, what does shame have to do with whether or not I'm in a hurry? But think about it. If you're in a shameful situation, you just want that thing to hurry up and be over with. Let's get past it. Let, let, get, get the light off of me and let's put it on something else. He that believeth shall not make haste. Maurice had this thing going on in his heart. He didn't like it. He didn't understand it. It was producing fear. He goes to the caretaker of his life. The caretaker of his life gives him a word. That word satisfied his heart. Did the feeling go away right then? Right. But I can tell you, his answer to me sufficed. That's right. The feeling didn't go away. His answer sufficed. It gave Maurice the confidence that he could stand there in the middle of that tribulation without no worries because he had a surety that whatever this thing is that he's feeling is going to go away. And, he, and that gave him the ability to stand there. Well, we have a surety. We have a sure word of what this thing's going to end up being. We look at it in the resurrected Jesus. That is our sure word. That is where we're going to end up. And with that, there's no longer any shame in the fact that I can't save myself because I don't need to. I've got a Father who's justifying my life. And I can stand there in the middle of the tribulation and it have no effect on my heart because I have a word from my Father which is guarding my heart. You don't have to guard your heart. The Word will guard your heart. It'll rise up and it will protect you. This is why Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil that's in the world. How does He protect you from the evil that's in the world? He gives you a Word that'll guard your heart. Amen? And you know, uh, the, the, the word, just to share, a little different than the word that came from my dad because it's a more sure word. It's a word that says live. And because when he came out of the grave, he came out with a life that told us live. So it was an, an answer that truly sufficed for the, for the longing of every man's heart. I brought up the example. It wasn't that I'm saying his dad had the right answer or the wrong answer. The purpose of bringing it up is to show the effect on the heart when a word does come forth from somebody that you're looking for to be the caretaker of your life. And that news... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Just the news, just the word coming in. You ever notice in Hebrews, it don't say that all things are upheld by the power of His word. It says all things are upheld just by the word of His power. Check it out. Read it. That's what it says. By the word of His power, not the power of His word. Things that make you go, hmm. All right, back to Greg's notes and where we're going into this. Just as Paul said in Romans 1, he isn't ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus wasn't ashamed of the children crying out to him to save them. Jesus responds to the Pharisees trying to shame him by saying, I hear them. Haven't you read where it, quote, uh, where it says, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. Jesus quotes Psalm 8, telling the Pharisees that praise has been perfected in the words coming from the children's mouth. He tells the Pharisees, he hears the children, and they have said the good thing and the right thing in looking to him for salvation. Babes and sucklings isn't necessarily talking about the physical age of children. It can include that too, but a little child is someone who is unlearned and is relying upon someone else. They, they are someone that's not taking thought of serving themselves with life, with justification and peace and love and joy because they see God is with them to justify them with His life. I'm thinking of Jesus saying in Matthew 18, unless you become as little children, you shall not enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become as little children, unless you become as one who is unlearned and lay aside the traditions of men. That's those crumbling foundations that we were talking about earlier. Lay those traditions aside. That's what it means to be a little child. It means you look to God to save you because you see, He is with you, having taken thought to give your life the care that it needs. Out of babes and sucklings comes perfect praise. Praise was perfected in the children because they saw Jesus was God with them, providing Himself a lamb to save them from sin and death and deliver them from their sufferings. The children thought nothing of their ability to save themselves and deliver themselves. They thought nothing of the lambs that they could offer to be cleansed from sin and death. They saw Jesus, and they saw it meant God had taken thought to save us and deliver us and redeem us, and out of that they made much of God's ability. They're meek thinking little of their ability. They're making much of God's ability to save them and committed their desire for salvation into His hands and into His right hand, His anointed one, the Christ. God perfects praise in us by... God perfects praise in us. It's not up to you to come up with perfect praise. Because I used to read that and I'm like, well, what is perfect praise? 
Why? Because the, the, it was the carnal mind that initiated that question. And the reason it did was because we judge that as being a good thing. So we need to be sure what it is so we can do that. You've done falling back into the same trap of trying to perfect your own life. <laughs> God perfects praise in us by showing up to offer himself a lamb. Perfect praise is looking to God to secure you from sin and death. Perfect praise is seeing God is with you to heal your broken heart with his life. Perfect praise is to see God with you in the person of Jesus to set you at liberty from the death that's bruising you. And when you see God is with you, when you see God is the one who can save, when you see that he's the one that can nurture you unto life, he is the one that can set you apart from... De this is Greg's notes, and I'm, I'm hearing him on the inside of me. So I'm <laughs> he's the one that can set you apart from death unto life. And you look unto him, and you call upon his name because you see that he is mighty to save you, and you cry out, Abba, into your hands I commit my life. And that is when praise has been perfected in you. Perfect praise is to cry out, Abba. The Holy Spirit perfects praise in us by leading us to the place whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit leads us to the place where we see God's righteousness towards our life to deliver us from the bondage of death and to serve us with His life. We look to Him to satisfy our desire for salvation instead of looking to what we can do. If you're, reading in, if you're reading Psalms 8 in the King James or you're reading it uh, from a Hebrew translation and you're wondering why Jesus quotes Psalm 8 differently in Matthew 21, it's because Jesus is quoting the Septuagint, which is, um, which is a translation of the Old Testament. It is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's what Jesus and the apostles would have been using in their day. These guys weren't sitting around reading the Hebrew Scriptures. They were reading the Septuagint. Okay, and that's why it, it, it says something different. The King James translates Psalm 8 as saying, Out of the mouths and babes and suppling thou hast ordained strength. But it means the same thing. Strength comes forth in those who declare the name of the Lord. Strength comes forth in those who see God is drawn near to them to save them, and they cry out to him to be saved. If I see that, that's what Maurice did to his dad. He called out to his dad. And what did that calling out to his dad do? It produced a strength in his heart. And when you see God is with you to save your life and to be the caretaker of your life, that is perfect praise when you call out Abba Father. But in the Old Testament says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. Strength rises up on the inside of you from that word that comes from the one that you called out to to save you. That strength comes forth because you see that he has the ability to save you. Not only the ability, but the desire. The, 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 salvation was God's idea. He's for it. <laughs> we didn't have to talk him into it. This whole thing was his idea. Amen?
but it produces strength on the inside of you. It, and, and when that strength comes forth, you, you, if you're honest, you know that that strength is not something you worked up of yourself. It's like it wanting there and then it is there. Well, I didn't produce that. Then that establishes the meekness and it brings about the boldness. Reminds me of another verse, Philippians 4.13. We're all familiar with this. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can do all things through Christ which... First off, most translations get this wrong. They say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what that verse says. Now, that would be a true statement. So, you know, if somebody's going to go with that, you're not going to get a hard time out of me. But it's interesting. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein is the power of God unto salvation. Well, the power of God unto salvation, power indicates strength, right? I can do all things through the wisdom and the power of God, which strengthens me. Because when you say who strengthens me, you're still, you, 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 you've separated, how should I say this? Christ, is the manifold wisdom of God. Okay, so and, and that's why we got into the deal about Jesus had to be saved. Well, why does God need to be saved? There, there's, there's, there's a multifacetedness to the, to the wisdom of God. And you can look at all the different dynamics and you can look at all the different elements. Somebody put a post in our Facebook group, well, how, do, how can it be the lamb and the lion? And I'm like, well, he's also the, the wine and the bread, okay? There's different elements and different things to look at because he is all in all. And he is in you all. <laughs> but I can do all things through the wisdom and the power of God. And as I, as anything that I, that I go forth to do, looking through the wisdom and the power of God, that would be a sound mind. And I'm going forth with the wisdom of God, which is a word that's coming from the one that I've looked to to be the caretaker of my life. And strength shows up. Ephesians says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I'm like, yeah, I wish I knew how to do that. <laughs> but the strength comes from the Lord. It's not something for you to work up. It's just something for you to see. And when you see it, and when you hear it, and when you understand it, it does something to your heart that guards you from the evil that's in this world. Happy Palm Sunday. <laughs>